Let's begin with prayer this morning. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to, get, to come together and study. As always, we ask that your Spirit will join us and our minds will be open to hear the words that you have for us and your angels will rejoice with us as we share about you. We want to remember the Granada family today as uh, the Granadas have lost their mother, that you will comfort them in their time of grieving. We pray in your holy name. Amen. And we are doing lesson number one in our quarterly, the new quarterly, The Fruit of the Spirit. And the title of this week's lesson is By Their Fruit. And as you studied your lesson this week, were there any questions, concerns, or items in the lesson that you wanted to be sure we covered? So somebody read for us in Sabbath's lesson the first paragraph that says, One of the most. One of the most thrilling promises of the Lord is that it will is that if we will abide in Him and allow Him to abide in us through His Spirit, we actually will be different. Our lives will be changed even radically. I think it's a great paragraph to start the quarter with and a great paragraph to start our lesson with. And I want, as we go through the lesson today, for you to think about what does it mean to abide in Christ and for Him to abide with us and see if we can't come to some insights and the things we can do that can enhance our ability to abide in Christ as we go through the lesson today. Sunday's lesson, first paragraph, says, Has anyone ever asked you if you've received the Holy Spirit? Usually this is a way of discovering whether you speak in tongues. For them, tongue speaking is the determining factor for whether or not you demonstrate the indwelling of the Spirit. Jesus, though, warns us about looking at certain outward signs and miracles as proof of anything. Read his clear warnings in Matthew seven twenty one through 23. Jesus says plainly that, undeniable miracles will be performed in Jesus' name, but that that does not prove that these people are his faithful followers. And so a question for you guys. How can we tell if we've received the Holy Spirit? I mean, this entitled quarterly, Fruits of the Spirit. How can we tell if we've received the Holy Spirit? Yes. Um, for me, it's, I don't know, it's a place I call the inner sanctum. It's like a place where there's nobody there but, but me and what or who I allow in. And the Holy Spirit is the person that talks to me when I'm going down the road, when uh, I'm working, when, uh, when I'm meeting someone new. You know, it's, you know, Lord, is this someone you want me to speak to? Okay, he's saying that he knows by his personal experience with God and the communication with your soul and, and God back and forth. And it, it seems like an, a, an everyday experience. It, it's not, I don't know, it, it, it's not looking into the future or, or it really is relating to uh, the history of the Bible in my mind. I like that. I like, don't we all have to have a personal experience? Yes. Yeah. That'd be counterfeited, though. When we have a personal experience, what are some of the objective evidences that it's the Holy Spirit rather than a counterfeit spirit? Are there objective evidences? Or is it always subjective, just my experience? Yes. They reflect the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, faith, Okay, the fruits of the Spirit. Yeah, I like this. So, would we have a change in life focus? So, where a person, before they have the Spirit come into their life, what might their life be focused on, their energy, their mindset? Where are they looking towards? Self. Self and how they can promote self. Paul says in, I think, Romans 8, that, that the uh, sinful mind is set 
on the, or the carnal mind is set on the things that the carnal nature desires. But the mind of the, of the spiritual man is set on what the spirit desires. And so would we say that when the spirit comes, there's been a change of mindset, that we begin focusing on something different than ourselves? Yes. When we say selves, that's like getting caught up in the world, seeing things that we seek rather than the things that that we know are, are reality. We're in the last days, you know, and we're are yearning every day. Our thoughts as we walk, you know, is the Lord's kind of thing. And there, the world today is so full of, of everything from electronics, uh, speed, ever since uh, Ellen White and the church and all of this started up, it was like Satan's loosening. And all the technology started coming out, and cars and planes and washing machines and all this that was supposed to uh, give us more time actually took time away from each other. Like I used to wash clothes as a branch with my grandmother, and that was some of the funnest times I can remember. We shared a lot about, you know, talking about the Lord. And, and so so you're, you're suggesting that there's a breakdown in relationships and caring for people, that we become more absorbed with, uh, with things that uh, promote self and gratify self. And the technologies help, help, may, may break those, those family bonds down. I think there's truth in that. As we look at the actual objective evidences when the Spirit comes into the life, one would have been this change of focus from self to others, a, a compassionate, tender, other-centered, kind, gentle approach, the fruits of the Spirit that were mentioned. Would there be a change in wisdom? Would a person have more wisdom if the Spirit is in their life? Would their reasoning capacities grow and expand when the Holy Spirit's in their life? Would they become more reasonable people or less reasonable people? Now, that's not generally one you hear listed under the the fruits, but wouldn't you think that would be true? I I think it's true. The Bible, as we come to know God better, our minds become healed and we become more reasonable. How about... An open-mindedness, a willingness to evaluate opinions and ideas that differ from your own without prejudice or bias. The spirits in your life, do you become more prejudiced and more biased or less prejudiced and less biased? I think Yeah, we're more open, open-minded and willing. In fact, Ellen White says that those who are unable to evaluate a position that differs from their own with unprejudiced, without prejudice and bias are not fit to teach in any department of God's cause. It's pretty, it's pretty strong, isn't it? Yeah. In other words, we will like Jesus. Yes. And she says truth loses nothing by close investigation. If you have the truth, it doesn't lose anything by asking questions and inquiring. The truth will only prove its stellarness and its, and its truthfulness. So when you have truth and you understand the truth, uh, you, can, you can stand for people to come and ask questions, inquire, and explore different concepts because it will only prove the false concepts false and the true concepts true. Yes. We also see improvement in our physical well-being. Yeah. To spiritual and, and uh, mental. Excellent. Uh, would we be more vigilant to take care of the spirit temple if the spirit is in our lives? Yeah, and, and, and there's some the points I want to make about that in just a second. Um, would we have a hunger for truth, a willingness to change one's beliefs when new truth presents? In other words, do we have a mindset to say, hey, I've got the truth, and I'm, and I'm here to tell you what it is, or, hey... Um, I'm hungry to know more truth. Whatever truth I know today, I understand I'm finite, God's infinite, 
And I will for all eternity be growing in my understanding. And there will never come an end to growing. We develop a, a hunger to know more as God reveals more to us. The truth is the truth. As finite beings, aren't we always growing? Isn't it always being revealed? Isn't it always unfolding? So we, so we never arrive at the truth. Because when we arrive, well, there's no more to learn. We close down. Yeah, so we develop this hunger, this love, love for truth. Objectively wise, I mean, if you compared the Holy Spirit to the spiritual internet, for example, some, a being who knows each one of us intimately can look over the needs of Kathy and say, Linda, you are what I need to meet her need and direct you to do that. So we're, we're sensitive to the Holy Spirit's leading to help and reach out and minister to other people. Without them telling you, you do what you're told to do, and the objective response is, that's exactly what I needed. You know, how did you know? I... So the Holy Spirit can lead us to minister to somebody that we didn't even realize what their need was, and we might not even know that we're meeting a need, but the Holy Spirit's using us to meet a need that, that we don't even know they need. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, on the way to, in the car, saying, if there's anybody that you need to talk to, you need to do something for today, I'm yours. I like it. I like it. If we have the Spirit in our life, question, guys, if the Spirit's moving in our lives, do we become a caretaker of God's planet or an exploiter of God's planet? Caretaker. Would that include animals? Yes. yes. Would that include the foods we eat? Yes. So if we're a caretaker of planets, do we slaughter animals to eat them? No. I mean, I'm putting a serious question out there. It's not primarily about just the health of the body. If we are a caretaker and watching over, will we slaughter the animal seed if we have other options? Why would we slaughter them for sacrifice? Do, do we slaughter them for sacrifice? Why would we have? Yeah, why would we slaughter them for sacrifice? There's a model. I mean, it's a model of what happens to us when our circulation is cut between us and God. What was society like in the days that they were slaughtering animal for sacrifice? Was it a industrial society? Agrarian society. And so in an agrarian society, what role did animals play in an agrarian society? Sustaining life and sustaining their opportunity with the work machines. Work machines. They had value. So sacrificing animals were sacrificing the things that they, they had their livelihood built upon, where they would find their sustenance from. We might, we might uh, in a similar analogy, to cut to the things we value, we would sacrifice our bank accounts, our property. You can make your analogy of life. Yes, and we're getting there. We're getting there. God chose this for several reasons. One, imagine you have a puppy or kitty cat that you've raised since it was born, and when you've committed some sin, in order for you to have reconciliation with God and peace and and dealing with that sin, you've got to go and personally cut that animal's throat. You've got to look in your little puppy dog's eyes, and you've got to confess your sins on its head, and you've got to cut its throat. How will you feel when you do that? This is what they did. Little lambs that they have basically birthed and helped birth and they've raised and they've cared for and they've got to take their lambs to sacrifice and they've got to, not the priest, the priest didn't cut the throat. The sinner who brought the lamb cut the throat. Do you think it could cause you to feel a sense of revulsion? Sickness in your stomach? Do you think it could condition you such that you never ever want to do whatever that was again? So part of the lesson was to 
help change our hearts towards the sin that was driving this. There were other lessons, objective lessons involved too. We've talked about it before, about the circle of love being the circle of life, the principle of life. And in an objective way, God tried to teach this in the sacrificial system. When it says the life is in the blood and the life circles, just circles, just circles. The the blood does, the circulation. And this is the principle of all life. We've gone through it before, and I don't have time to do that today, um, all the examples in nature. But when you confess sin on the head of the animal, and then you cut the circulation. It's an objective lesson teaching that sin severs the circle of love, the connection with God. And so he's trying to teach that object lesson as well. So there are multiple layers as to why that is, that God gave us this lesson. Um, Do you think people who have the Holy Spirit in their life spend their time and resources to promote the love of their heart, Jesus Christ? If you have the Spirit in your life, do you see it in in the places we spend our time and resources? Yeah, absolutely. Is it necessary to speak in tongues to have a life filled by the Holy Spirit? No. No. But does the Holy Spirit sometimes manifest through various miraculous gifts? Like, I'm speaking English, and some of you guys out there who don't speak English are hearing me in Vietnamese today. Does the Holy Spirit ever do that? Yes, he does, but it's not necessary. Does Satan ever try to counterfeit the movements of the Spirit of God? How have you seen the movements of the Spirit of God counterfeited by Satan? What ways have you seen that? Worship confusion. Worship confusion. What do you you mean by that? Give us examples of what that would really look like today if we were trying to discern between the movements of the Holy Spirit and the movements of the Spirit of God and we're at some place of worship. How can we, what would we look for? Well, if we're describing that, it would be everybody making noises, nobody knowing what each one was doing. They were just falling around and, you know, no no real order to it, no more reason to it, just acting. You know what we call that? Hysteria. Hysteria. Yeah. And, and last fruit of the Spirit, when you read in Galatians the list of the fruits of the Spirit, which is the last one? Self-control. Plug that into your mind. When the Holy Spirit has His way in our life, we not only become loving and kind and patient and, and all the things that the Spirit does, we develop self-control, self-governance. Notice it's not God-control. We don't become puppets without with thoughtless, mindless puppets that God is, is manipulating us through our head with. We actually are restored to godliness where we have the ability to be self-governed. The Spirit helps us with our decisions. Right. But does the Spirit make our choices for us? No. No. And so when the, when the Holy Spirit comes, do we get more dignity, nobility, self-control, self-governance, or do we lose control, become emotionally dysregulated, uh, burst out in uncontrollable behavior, uh, needing some deacons to throw blankets over us to keep us modest. <laughs> we don't need that, but I have scared me. <laughs> you see, the Holy Spirit brings greater self-governance. And if you look at the, the, the people in the Scripture that had the Holy Spirit, John the Baptist, according to Jesus, more spirit than, than anyone uh, born of women, we never see him out of control. Jesus himself was never out of control. And of course, he was filled with the Spirit. And so, one of the things I look for to see the true spirit is, are the people that are manifesting the spirit having greater self-governance, patience, gentleness, kindness, or are they losing control and becoming emotionally dysregulated? And if you look at, 
in James chapter 1, where it says, no one should say God tempts, because God doesn't tempt anyone. Each one of us are tempted when we're drug away and enticed by our own evil desires or feelings or emotions. Emotions are an avenue through which devil or Satan attempts us. Whereas John 8, 32, Jesus says, you will know the truth and the truth sets free. There's, a, there's a, a difference between the spirit of God working through truth and love and another spirit working through excited emotions. Something a little more subtle is the gospel of prosperity. He says something a little more subtle is the gospel of prosperity. And so the fruit of the spirit teaching God constructs that are twisted. Does anybody know what he means by the gospel of prosperity? basically, that if you're healthy and wealthy, you are clearly right with God and have the Spirit in your life. If you have illness or you have financial difficulties, you are clearly on the outs with God and the Spirit's not working in your life. That's what the disciples thought. The disciples thought that, absolutely. The rich man, this is why it was so hard for the rich man to give up his riches, because it was the proof that he was right with God. But what story of the Bible proves that to be false? Job. Job. Job, right there in chapter 1, perfect and righteous in all his ways, no one on the earth like him, and he loses his health and his wealth. And in the end, God says that Job was right. He hadn't done anything wrong to cause this. And so Job demonstrates that we can suffer financial loss, loss of health, and still be completely right with God in our life. Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar. But Nebuchadnezzar, I think, actually had some outs there. He was proud and arrogant and went up and said, look at all these things that I, I built, and therefore... The judgment came upon him to have him lose his reason for a period of seven years to help bring him to humility and, and a better walk with God. Yeah. So Satan wants to destroy within us the image of God. That's his goal. He wants to make us look like him. Non-thinking, non-reasoning, out of control, emotionally impulsive beings. Another way that the spirit, false spirit works is by getting people to surrender self-control, the last fruit, to some other person or being. That's a false spirit. Surrendering your self-control to, say, some person in hypnosis, mesmerism, uh, surrendering your thinking or uh, judgment to an authority figure, blindly following some leader who, who you believe knows better than you and can think better than you. And so, as I've said in here many times, I am not up here to tell any of you what to think. Each one of you have your own individuality, identity, ability to think and to reason, and each one of you have the responsibility to weigh out the issues for yourself and come to your own conclusion. My goal is simply to stimulate you to think. And then ultimately everybody, as Paul says in Romans, must be fully persuaded in their own mind. And so all movements of the false spirit tend to diminish investigation of truth. This is something you can look for. All movements of the false spirit will tend to diminish investigations of the truth. And a common thread that runs through all forms of spiritualism is the pursuit of knowledge without the investigation of evidence or the use of your reason. Think about tarot cards, voodoo, Ouija boards, palm reading, astrology, all the forms of, of spiritualism, they're all seeking knowledge. Uh, you know, what, what's going on with my dead loved one on the other side in the seance? Uh, read my palm and tell me, should I get together with this guy or that, that girl? Uh, let's look at my uh, horoscope and see if, the, if something good's going to happen in the future. All of it is a pursuit of knowledge but without investigation of evidence or the use of your God-given reasoning capacities. That is a common thread that runs through spiritualism. And when you see movements in the church that diminish the investigation of Scripture, that, that try to give us some spiritual insight without you weighing it out, comparing it, thinking it, reasoning it through, being persuaded in your own mind, as the Scriptures tells us we should do, you can have a big red flag go up, wait a minute, maybe this isn't the Spirit of God. Ephesians tells us that we are children of light, not children of darkness. 
last paragraph. Somebody read that for us. Being a true Christian. Last paragraph, Sunday's lesson. Being a true Christian and bearing good fruit plays the emphasis on being. A good actor can play the part of Mahatma Gandhi, but he can never be Mahatma Gandhi. We can look good, sound good, and even appear to do good. But unless the Holy Spirit gives us a new heart, we can never be good. And then, and then the green section right below it says, dwell more on the distinction between doing good and being good. First, what does it mean by good? Second, can a person do good and not be good? Or can a person be good and not do good? Um, thoughts about this? Let's, let's define what is good. And, and it won't be an easy definition. I looked it up in the dictionary and there were 58 definitions for the word good. For the English majors in here, there were 41 adjectives. Six nouns, one interjection, one adverb, and nine idioms for the word good. Didn't Christ say only God is good when, when the, the man came up to him and said, good teacher, what must I do to be saved? He did say that, and he did say that as a matter of fact, that only God is good, therefore I'm not good? Or was Christ actually good? So then why did he say it to the man if Christ was actually good? Put a focus on God. He wanted the man to realize that he was God. That's right. It was a test of the man. He wanted the man to, to he was testing how the man saw Christ. He call, you call me a good teacher. Why do you call me good? Only God in heaven is good. This was an opportunity for the man to say, well, because you're the Savior. You're God incarnate. That's why I call you good. It was a test of his uh, recognition. And instead, the man was basically using public flattery. Oh, good teacher. <laughs> trying to publicly flatter, and Christ was calling him out on his calling me good without actually believing in your heart that I'm good. And so that's why he said to him that only God is good. But as we look at the definitions, anyone want to throw a definition of good out? No. Knowing there's 58 possibles? No, I'm harmful and looking out for the other one's best interest. With my children, they didn't think I was always very good. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but I was looking out for their best interest by chastising or disciplining or whatever I had to do to kind of channel them in the direction that was positive for their own life and their futures. I like it. A loving, other-centered interest. Good. Uh, th- and that would fit with the definition, I think, that meets from the dictionary, which is morally excellent, virtuous, righteous, pious, a good man. This is what the dictionary definition, one of the definitions. And I think that one probably fits the meaning we're looking for here. Other definitions that might play in. Satisfactory in quality, quantity, or degree. Good health. A high quality, excellent. Well behaved, a good child. And as you think about these then, I've got questions for you. Can evil people do, according to these definitions, satisfactory quality and quantity of work? So they can do good work. Uh, can they get good report cards and job performance reviews? Evil people. I won't comment on that. Does that mean that good people who get good report cards and good review, I mean, excuse me, evil people who get good report cards and good performance reviews, does that mean they are good people? Can evil people produce high quality and excellent products, even sermons? Yes. Yes. Mm. Does that mean they're good? Would good people be people who keeps an honest evaluation of their self and pursues Christ and his word and in their life and the best that they can? Morally excellent, virtuous, and righteous. Yes. Can evil people be well-behaved socially? 
Does that mean they're good? Can evil people be righteous, moral, and virtuous? Be righteous, moral, and virtuous. No. Can they be pious? Mm. So, a person can do good and not be good. It's very clear. Can a person who is good in heart, is um, righteous, moral, and virtuous, Christ-like in character, uh, can they avoid doing good? No. Yes. Can they? Can a person who is genuinely good in heart, Christ-like, moral, virtuous, in heart, can they avoid doing good? No. no. It's not a choice to do that. I mean, we see it all the time. Yeah, I don't think they can, because the question is, from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, Jesus said. What your heart is like comes out in the way you live your life. And so if the heart is truly this way, this is something you can't avoid. This is what you will be. Um, I didn't say, I didn't say, could they make mistakes? I said, can they avoid doing good? I purposely worded, I didn't say, can a morally righteous and virtuous person not sin and not make mistakes? I said, can they avoid doing good? No, they will do good. They might make mistakes. Moses struck the rock, but, but what they're doing may not appear good to everybody. You know, people may not agree that that's good. People didn't agree that what Jesus was saying and doing was good. Um, does it matter? No. Is it relevant what people think about your actions? No. Is that really? Does that matter at all? As far as the actual worth and moral value of your heart's intent and the behavior you're engaged in. Did it matter what people thought about what Jesus was doing when he came and did what he did? No, no. It didn't change the value of what Christ did. It didn't change the quality of Christ's heart. And this is something that I think many of us suffer with on earth. We become very, very vulnerable to, instead of keeping our focus on Christ, God's plan for our life, our moral duty, what's actually true, reasonable, and healthy in our lives, we instead look outward to see what other people may think and how other people react to our choices and therefore make choices based on opinion rather than what's actually true and healthy. I think it's a very big danger that we all are vulnerable to. Can a genuinely good person who's got a good heart, moral virtue, Christ-like, make bad grades or do suboptimal performance in a job? Yes. Would it be because they lack diligence, effort, heart's desire to do good? Or maybe because they are in a task that they're not really either previously equipped, prepared, or capable of doing? You ever been on a ball team with somebody who just, you could see, they have passion. They want to help the team. You can see the tears in their eyes, but they're really not very coordinated. (laughs) Have you ever seen that? But you know their heart is 100% trying with every effort they have, but they don't perform very well. So when I point these these contrasts out between good heart, bad heart, good behavior, not so good behavior, and I ask now the question, what does this tell us about being fruit inspectors? That's not our job. You know what I mean by fruit inspectors, don't, don't you? Yeah. We go around and we now are, uh, you know, how many are assigned by the, by the Lord to go around in the church and be inspectors of fruit? Are there times we shouldn't inspect fruit? Jesus said, by the fruit you shall know them. When is it appropriate to inspect fruit? And I, you know what I mean, character fruit, 
quality of a person's heart as best you can by their fruit, when is it appropriate to do that? Well, it's like when she was talking about the Spirit talking to her heart about her friend. I mean, by their character, by the, the things that you see. So when is it appropriate? Yes, that's right. But when is it appropriate to do that? I think when you go and have leadership roles, okay. the influence that that leader will have over a, a specific group, you need to weigh heavily on what the character is of that position and you're putting that person. So if we're going to be deciding for somebody who's going to be uh, in a leadership role, elder in the church, deacon in the church, uh, take some role in the children's division, should we look at the, the quality of the person's disposition, personality, traits, abilities to fulfill those roles? Does that mean we're looking at fruit to see whether they're going to be saved or not? No. No. Yes. Uh, maybe we should wait until the fruit is ripe. Maybe we should wait until the fruit's ripe. Yeah, there's a great point in that because have we ever in our church put people in roles before they were ready? Prejudge someone. And it discouraged them. And they didn't do it. And he said we can prejudge someone. Yes. We can put people in roles before they're actually prepared, before they've developed the capacity that they're going to do a great job one day. Moses, was he ready to lead Israel at age 40? Apparently not. No, it took him 40 more years in the wilderness. At age 80, he was finally ready. He had to ripen, as you say. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I think every parent needs to evaluate the fruits of the spirit of their children. She says she thinks that every parent needs to evaluate the fruits of the spirit of their children. For what purpose? Yeah, not, not to judge. To parent them, she says, not to punish or hurt, but to help in, in, instill and help them grow in more grace uh, and help maybe the Lord prune some areas that need to be pruned. Yeah. Is it possible that, uh, say, like on a nominating committee, they see an individual that has a potential to do a certain thing, and so they so it's voted in that they do, but then we leave them at that. We don't train them how to do it right. Yeah, I think that happens. Uh, there's a question. Um, I just want to close with two questions. We're not going to discuss because we've got so much more in the lesson. We're already halfway through our class. But as you look at the fruit inspection, I would say the church office is one. How about deciding on your life partner? Keep that one in mind. When you're looking for your life partner, should you be inspecting the fruit of that person? Big time. Big time. And how about deciding on a nanny for your child? Did you evaluate the, the character fruits of the person who's going to be taking care of your children? I think there's, and there's many other places. But notice, our fruit inspection is not determining whether that person saved or lost. We're not judging them. But we are determining their fitness to f- fulfill certain roles for, for us and for our church. Do that for teachers? Teachers, sure. Teachers, yeah. Thursday's lesson. Something interesting that I did not want us to miss. That's why we're jumping to Thursday's lesson. It says in Thursday's lesson, the first paragraph, now get this and get your mind around this. Prepare. I know it's going to shock you. Between 1730 and 1745, the American colonies from Maine to Georgia experienced a religious revival known as the Great Awakening. Jonathan Edwards was a leader in this movement of spiritual renewal. In July of 1741, he preached a sermon entitled Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God which for some has become a symbol of the bleak, cruel, and hell-bent outlook of many Christians. However polemic, this sermon did express the truth about the awful weight of sin, the attitude of an infinitely holy God towards sin, and the surety of the day of judgment. Anybody familiar with this sermon? I see a lot of heads shaking no. So I'm going to share just a paragraph, two paragraphs of this sermon with you, and I want you to keep in mind that this is being offered up to you as a source of truth on these issues. Listen to this as a source of truth. Consider this, you that are here present, that yet remain in an unregenerate state. 
that God will execute the fierceness of his anger implies that he will inflict wrath without pity. When God beholds the ineffable extremity of your case and sees your torment to be so vastly disproportionate to your strength and sees how your poor soul is crushed and sinks down, as it were, into an infinite gloom, he will have no compassion upon you. He will not forbear the execution of his wrath or in the least lighten his hand. There shall be no moderation or mercy, nor will God then at all stay his roughed wind. He will have no regard to your welfare, nor be at, at all careful lest you should suffer too much in any sense than only that you shall not suffer beyond what strict justice requires. The misery you are exposed to is that which God will inflict to that end, that he might show that what the wrath of Jehovah is. It is an everlasting wrath. It would be dreadful to suffer this fierceness and wrath of Almighty God one moment, but you must suffer it to all eternity. There will be no end to this exquisite, horrible misery. When you look forward, you shall see a long forever, a boundless duration before you, which will swallow up your thoughts and amaze your soul, and you will be absolutely in despair of ever having any deliverance, any end, any mitigation, any rest at all. You will know certainly that you must wear out long ages, millions upon millions of ages, in wrestling and conflicting with this almighty, merciless vengeance. And then when you have done so, When so many ages have actually been spent by you in this manner, you will know that all is but a point to what remains, so that your punishment will indeed be infinite. Why would anybody worship a God like that? She says, why would anybody worship a God like that? I would hate to meet a God like that. It negates the fruits of the Spirit. Yeah, one of them is joy. What do you think, though, about this being offered up? as a source of truth on God's attitude towards sin. Don't we hear variations of this from pulpits today? Yes, we do. So I'm challenging you. What do you think about this? Is this a source of truth? Do you value this? Do you think this represents rightly God's attitude towards sin? No. Is this in the Adventist church? Attitude towards sin? Yes. Attitude towards the sinner? No. Really? He says attitude towards sin, yes. And you notice what it was said, that the attitude towards sin is that God will inflict this misery and suffering upon the wicked. It is coming out from God. I've actually heard people say, you know, that in in almost a happy, grateful way, that they're happy that the unrighteous or the sinners are going to suffer for eternity. And I, I just think it's wicked. That spirit is wrong. Let's break this down into where this breaks down as I see it. It all stems back to God's character, which is reflected in his law. There are two ways to see God's law and how God runs the universe. One is God, as the powerful being in the universe, has enacted law, like our Congress enacts laws. And as the imposer of law, he now, as the great ruler, has to impose penalties for breaking the law. Therefore, if you break the law... You know, God has to impose. No, he sent a son to pay the penalty, and he posed the penalty on a son. If you accept the payment, you can have, you know, pardon next to your name, and he won't impose it on you. But if you reject the son, he's going to now, in order to be just, inflict this penalty upon you. That's one way to see it. There's another way to see it. And that God, as the Bible says, is love. That's his nature, his character. And as the creator, he created all the universe to operate upon the principle of other-centered giving. This is the design template, the construction protocols upon which life is designed to operate. Deviations from this protocol, and I'll give you one example that I've used before, the circle of giving as it talks about, this, the circle of love. Every breath you take, you give away carbon dioxide. 
the plants give back oxygen to you. A never-ending circle of giving freely that life is built upon. It's a construction protocol's design. If you decide, I don't want to be part of that circle, I'm going to put a plastic bag over my head so I can keep my carbon dioxide, does God have to inflict a penalty upon you? No. The other way to see it is God's law is a natural law. It is the protocols upon life which is built, and deviations inherently bring upon the sinner consequence of ruin and death. God does not have to inflict it. These are the two different ways to see it. Jonathan Edwards saw it as an infliction. And, and basically what it comes down to is this, that, God, that Satan stands up to the whole universe and says, look guys, I never said God wasn't powerful. Of course he's powerful. He made everything. What I said is that he's not good. If he could just get a little self-restraint, uh, maybe the fruit of the Spirit and get a little self-control, and, and not lash out against us in anger and wrath, if he would just leave us alone in our little corner of the universe, well, we could live for all eternity in sin because there is nothing wrong with sin. There's something wrong with God. That's the, that's the lie of this other way of looking at it. And the source of death is not sin. Sin doesn't kill. God is the source of death. He's the one that kills. That's what they say. But what does the scripture say? The wages of sin is death. James chapter 1 says, sin when it is full grown brings forth death. So the scriptures make sin to be the problem that destroys the sinner. This other view makes God to be the problem who inflicts death upon the sinner. Yes? Um, in the same way that you, were, that you were just telling us about, how does Jesus and him coming to earth play into that? Ah, man, that's a great question. She wants to know, how does Jesus coming to earth play into that? Okay. And because... Of, can I read uh, quickly two questions and then come back to that? Because I want to contrast with you what Jonathan Edwards said about God's attitude towards sin and what Ellen White said. This is out of First Selected Messages, page 235. We are not to regard God as waiting to punish the sinner for his sin. The sinner brings the punishment upon himself. His own actions start a train of circumstances that bring the sure result. Every act of transgression reacts upon the sinner, works in him a change of character, and makes it more easy for him to transgress again. By choosing to sin, men separate themselves from God, cut themselves off from the channel of blessing, and the sure result is ruin and death. Now, which version does that sound like? An infliction by God or a natural consequence of deviating from the principles of life? So, you know, we have this one version which makes God out into this arbitrary dictator of the universe who is a power monger who will get you if you don't do what he says. We have this other version that God created life to operate only in certain ways. And if you're in harmony with it, you have life. If you're not in harmony, you have only ruin and death. But God loved us too much to leave us in that circumstance, so he sent his son to bring us back into harmony with the very protocols of life. How does that work? In order to understand... We first have to understand what went wrong. The protocols of life are the laws of love. God is love. Uh, and I don't have time to go through that whole circle, but you saw, you saw from that one example. Um, Doc. Classic examination. Example of what you're saying is this. Is the teenagers smoke because, well, it's fun to do. His friends are all doing it. And they have help us not bad. And they, 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 it doesn't make a difference. So he smoked for 35, 40 years. And finally gets emphysema, can't breathe. He gets chronic bronchitis. And he starts hawking up blood. The doctor said he got cancer of the lung because he smoked it. So ultimately, he, he dies choking to death and coughing up blood. Natural consequence of his decisions 40 years ago. Yep, you see that? That's what he's talking about. Uh, you, if you as parents, that's a great example. You teach your kids not to smoke. If they begin smoking, do you have to hunt them down and inflict penalties upon them? 
No, the penalties are inherent because you're violating the principles that healthy living physiology is based upon. And so the universe runs on the law of love, the law of other-centered giving. How did that, that law of love get broken? Imagine that you're in a healthy relationship and marriage with somebody that you love and trust. And somebody close to you comes and tells you a lie that your spouse is cheating with another. Your own brother, sister, mother, father tells you this lie. And they have tears in their eyes as they tell you because they act as if their heart is breaking over it, but they're lying to you. They even bring digitally enhanced photos of showing your spouse in the arms of another. Now, while it's not true, your spouse is loyal and faithful. If you believe the lie that your spouse is cheating, will something inside of you change? Yes. Yes. Notice what happens if you believe your spouse is cheating, love and trust gets broken. Satan is the father of lies. Who did he lie about? God. Lies believed break the circle of love and trust. As soon as you believe your spouse is cheating, what emotion increases in you? Fear. See? As soon as fear increases, where does your focus turn? To self. We've got to protect ourselves from getting hurt. So lies believed break the circle of love and trust. Broken love and trust results in fear and selfishness, known in the world today as survival of the fittest. That's Satan's infection to planet Earth. All nature groans under it. And survival of the fittest is fear and selfishness leads to acts of sin. Acts of sin lead to terminal condition. Without God's intervention, we will die. Self-terminating condition. But Christ came. We'll answer your question still. We had to first understand the problem. Why did Christ come? Well, what broke the circle of love and trust? Lies. So Christ had to do something to counter the lies. I am the way, the truth, and the life. He came to reveal the truth. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The Father and I are one. So he came to reveal the truth about God, the truth about himself, expose Satan and a liar and a fraud. So truth wins us back, dispels lies, wins us back to love and trust. In love and trust, we open the heart. I trust you now. I see, I believe lies. You're not what Satan says you are. I am so sorry, God. I am, I am, feel so horrible. I've, I've not trusted you. I give, I give my heart to you. Open my heart. We open the heart to God. And then Romans 5, 5 says he pours out his spirit. And the spirit takes what Christ has achieved and what did Christ achieve? Did Christ just achieve revelation of truth or did he achieve something more? Revelation of did he just achieve re- revelation of God's character or did he achieve something actual and accomplishment in a human brain? See, in Jesus Christ, Jesus is this unique, really cool being. He, how, did, how did Adam come into the world? He was formed out of dust, got breathed into his nostrils, a breath of life, perfect, sinless being, Eve taken from his side, sinless being. Did Jesus' humanity come into the world that way? No. You and I are born in sin, conceived in iniquity, Psalms 51, sinful mother, sinful father. Did Jesus' humanity come into the world that way? Notice, he's unique. He didn't come in like Adam and Eve. He didn't come in like you and me. He had a sinful mother, Mary, Galatians chapter 4. But his father was God himself for his humanity. So in Jesus, we have this unique being in which the two antagonistic principles are at war. God's law of love, greater love is no man that he give his life for a friend. Satan's law of survival of the fittest, watch out for number one. And it says in Hebrews chapter four that Christ was tempted in every way, just like we are, yet without sin. And in James chapter one, we already quoted, we are tempted when we're drug away and enticed by our own evil desires, are both of those texts true? Does that mean Jesus experienced internal emotional temptation? Gethsemane. Jesus is in Gethsemane. Does he have emotional anguish? If he follows his emotions, where are his emotions pulling him? To save who? 
Notice the root. Give my life that others may live. Save self. Christ experienced temptation to act in self-interest, just as we do, in a powerful way. But every time the temptation came, he said, no one can take my life. I will give my life freely. So in Christ Jesus, why did he have to die? Why did he have to go all the way to death? Because on the cross, he wasn't a helpless thief, helpless human. Those two thieves, when they were on the cross, could they do anything to get themselves off? Could Christ do something if he wanted to get himself off? Get your mind around. On the cross, the commander of the entire universe, the creator of all things, on the cross, all he has to do is think, be gone. And he still doesn't even have a thought to harm his enemies. And so in the human brain of Christ Jesus, perfect other-centered love destroyed that temptation to act in self-interest. This is why he had to die. Because at any point along death's approach, Jesus uses his power to stop death from taking him. Who did he save? Self. But giving his life freely destroys that, and he develops in a human brain a perfect godly character. And thus he becomes the source, as it says in Hebrews 5.8. He becomes, he says, once he was made perfect, he became the source of salvation for all who obey him. And so he said to his disciples, it is expedient for you that I go, because if I don't go, this comforter won't come. But if I go, the comforter will come. Now, he's not going to speak on his own. He's going to speak only what he hears. He's going to take what is mine, and he's going to make it known to you. And so what did Christ do for us? He revealed the truth, which destroys the lies, wins us to trust. He developed a perfect character that when we trust him, the Holy Spirit takes and reproduces in us. So it's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. We have his love poured into our hearts. God is love. We have himself poured into our hearts. We become, as Peter says, partaker of the divine nature. And perfect love casts out the fear from our hearts so that we are able, as it says in Revelation, that Revelation chapter 12, those that are ready to meet Christ when he comes look like this. These are they who do not love their life so much as to shrink from death. What does that mean? What is it describing? People who are not concerned with surviving for themselves. They're willing to give their lives to others. And the only way that can happen is they've come to love others, God and others, more than themselves. It's no longer Christ, uh, we that live, but Christ lives in. It's the regenerating process. Perfect love, casting out fear. Does that answer your question? And it's, it's dynamic, it's powerful, it's, it's restorative, it's consistent. We can see God as a God of love. We can see Christ, his mission here to reveal truth and to accomplish real things. And it takes away this whole ugly penal payment, uh, God, Jesus protecting us from the Father. We find whole harmony between the Godhead as the Father, Son, and Spirit are all unified in their interventions with the destructiveness of sin to heal and save their creation. Any questions about that? Um, without the Holy Spirit in our lives, which would reveal the fruits of the Spirit, we will not receive the latter rain and we will not be ready for the second coming. And the latter rain is the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, there's no question. And we see the Holy Spirit makes effectual in our lives what Christ accomplished by his life. Does everybody understand that? The Holy Spirit makes effectual, makes happen in us transforms, regenerates, heals, fills us with love, gives us wisdom, convicts, draws, strengthens, so that we become like Christ. It's the Holy Spirit working to reproduce in us what Christ accomplished in his life. So that we become like Christ in character. 
question of did the Jonathan Edwards position represent truth about God's attitude? This is out of uh, Great Controversy 542. Could those whose lives have been spent in rebellion against God be suddenly transported to heaven and witness the high and holy state of perfection that had ever exists there? Every soul filled with love, every countenance beaming with joy, and enrapturing music and melodious strains rising in honor to God and the Lamb, and ceaseless streams of light flowing upon the redeemed from the face of him who sits on the throne. Could those whose hearts are filled with hatred of God, of truth and holiness, mingle with the heavenly throng and jo- join their songs of praise? Could they endure the glory of God and the Lamb? Oh, no, no. Years of probation were granted them that they might form characters for heaven. But they have never trained the mind to love purity. They have never learned the language of heaven. And now it is too late. A life of rebellion against God has unfitted them for heaven. Its purity, holiness, and peace would be torture to them. The glory of God would be a consuming fire. They would long to flee from that holy place. They would welcome destruction that they might be hidden from the face of him who died to redeem them. The destiny of the wicked is fixed by their own choice. Their exclusion from heaven is voluntary with themselves. Get that. Voluntary with themselves and just and merciful on the part of God. Like the waters of the flood, the fires of the great day declare God's verdict that the wicked are incurable incurable. Does that sound like some arbitrary thing God has to inflict upon them? Oh, you broke the rule? You didn't get the payment made to your account? So sad, too bad. Get ready, here comes the firestorm. Is that what's happening? Not at all. We have this ugly thing, and I'm going to tell you where it comes from. It comes from paganism. It comes from paganism, which infected the old church in Rome, in which we have angry, wrathful gods who have to be appeased by the worshiper in some form or fashion, and Christianity took on that whole thing, and we have angry, wrathful God who's being pled with by Jesus for his blood, Mary, and all the saints, and then when the Reformation came, we got rid of all the peripheral stuff, but the heart of it we have kept. We have kept an angry, wrathful God who needs Jesus to plead with him his blood in order for us to be forgiven. It's ugly. One puzzling dimension to this whole issue is that apparently the Christian church has come to believe that a small minority will make it to the kingdom and the vast majority will be lost and suffer separation from God. That's troublesome to me because as Paul says in Romans 7, if sin did abound, grace did much more abound. What kind of a victory is it if in the end only a small minority are redeemed by Christ's sacrifice and not the vast majority of the I don't think we can know how many is going to be saved, but we do know Revelation tells us there's a great multitude from every nation, kindred, tribe, and people, a great multitude that will be saved. I don't know how many that is, um, but I think it's not going to be a little insignificant number. Certainly not going to be limited to 144,000 literal people. It's going to be way more than that. So, yeah, I, I think we should be hopeful. And we have a message. And by the way, Ellen White actually said in Christ's Object Lessons that the final message of mercy to lighten the world for Christ's coming, anybody know what it is? Is the truth about God's character of love. That is the final message. And that message is not preached when we preach this pagan thing of an angry, wrathful God, this this uh, Jonathan Edwards thing. That is not the final message of mercy. I saw the special on the book of Revelation on, on the uh, National Ge- Geographic Channel. And it was absolutely filled with misrepresentations. They started off by saying that uh, most of the Christian churches regard the book of Revelation as literal. And none other than our friend uh, Doug Batchelor, who was featured, 
saying that the uh, the unrighteous and unrepentant would be cast into the lake of fire. But he didn't go on to explain what that was, did he? No, and they didn't give him a chance to. One of the one of the big things that I think all of us need to keep in mind is that anytime you do an interview with someone, especially if they're not doing it from a friendly point of view necessarily to you. So edit to make it say what they want. Yeah. To make it say whatever they want to say. Let's jump into Monday's lesson. Go back to Monday's lesson. Talks about Christ being the uh, the vine and we are the branches and the Father is the is the one who uh, gardens or tends the branches. And then it goes on uh, to talk about uh, being disconnected or to, uh, from God or connected uh, to God. And, and I want to just talk about why this makes a difference for us, not just in some eternal future spiritual way, but right here, right now. The way God created us in his design template is for what, what I call, or what we call, adaptation. We actually adapt or change physically, biologically, neurologically, genetically, based on life experience, choices, beliefs, what we eat, what we watch. It actually changes us. Uh, identical twins at age five have 95% of their genes expressed in the same way. By the time they're 70, less than 5% of their genes are still expressed in the same way. In other words, more than 95% of the genes are now expressed differently because life experiences, beliefs, choices, things we go through alter our gene expression. We are constantly uh, changing based on life experience. Neural circuitry is constantly changing based on life experience. When you give somebody a placebo and they believe that the placebo will help them, the brain releases dopamine and endorphins, which actually gives a sense of euphoria and pain relief. If somebody comes to you with a, with a shaman stick and pronounces a curse on you and you believe you've been cursed, the brain suppresses release of dopamine and releases cholecystokinine and other polypeptides, which cause a sense of pain and ache and, and, and gloom and, and a depressed dysphoric emotion. There's actually neurobiologic changes that happen based simply on a change in belief. This is where Satan's power is. He has power when he gets us to believe lies about God. It causes us to be discouraged and dysphoric. And then when this, when we believe these like curses and, and bad things, then this causes the, the stress response to kick up. When you kick up the stress response, we kick out inflammatory factors. The inflammatory factors cause physical health problems and react back upon the brain, suppressing genes that make the brain healthy. And we actually lose brain tissue, neural connection. We see shrinkage in key parts of the brain, all based on a change in belief. And the Bible says, a merry heart doeth good like a medicine. We have a cheer of heart. We have truth coming into our minds. It actually changes us in a healthy way. So... 1998, a teacher in Tennessee high school noticed a gasoline-like smell and began complaining of headache, nausea, shortness of breath, and dizziness. The school was evacuated, and over the next week, more than 100 staff and students were admitted to the local emergency room complaining of similar complaints. After extensive tests and investigation, there was no medical reason for these admissions. It was called the nocebo effect. Basically, they believed that something exposed them, uh, was exposed to them, but there was never a toxin. That caused any of this. It was all based on belief. Uh, one study found that women who believe they are particularly prone to heart attack are nearly four times as likely to die from a heart condition than women who don't believe that but have the same risk factors. In Jordan, 1998, 800 children apparently suffered side effects from a vaccination, and 122 of them were admitted to the hospital, but no problem was ever found with the vaccine. What happened? They believed a word report got out, and this is, this is called a mass hysteria. 
and they found that the people who heard or saw another person, if you saw another person coughing and hacking, then you were more likely to get the symptoms yourself than if you didn't see it. Because of the belief that it had upon you, you began to worry, the anxiety, and you began to have the symptoms. Satan's power over us is the lies that he tells. And in the Old Testament sanctuary system, which we just studied last week, what in the system represents the lies of Satan? When you look at the old sanctuary system, those of us who believe in Jesus Christ are represented by who in the system? The, the priesthood of believers, those wearing the white robes. Okay, The priesthood of believers, that's us. We're the priests, the daily priests, not the high priest. High priest is Jesus. So a daily priest could go into the holy place. And in the holy place, you want a closer connection with God. You want to see him personally. And so you look back to where God is, and where is God in the system? Most holy place. And what's obstructing your view as you stand there and look? And what's sewn on the veil? Angels were sown on the veil. And when Christ died, what happened to the veil? It was rent by whom? By the hand of God, basically, one of God's agencies. What is this teaching us? That our view of God has been obstructed by some angelic beings. But Christ came and died, and when he died, the obstruction was rent, and we could see God clearly again. The way to God has been opened. And interestingly enough, I don't have time to go through all the Bible passages, in 2 Corinthians 4, 3, 4, and 6, it says, Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age, who's the God of this age? Satan. Satan. Has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has made his light shine into our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. What is it saying? That the light of God's glory can't be seen because of a veil of Satan's lies. The Shekinah glory of God can't be seen because this veil with angels on it is in the way. And so symbolically in the old system, that veil represented the lies told, which was destroyed by Christ's death. And now the way is open for us to see God clearly again. Uh, let's have a prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you have gone to such lengths to reach us with this incredible truth about this loving, gracious, giving uh, being that you are. We ask that your Holy Spirit will enlighten our minds. Help us take the, the things we've studied together today to go home, study, reason them out for ourselves, look at the evidence of Scripture, and be able to come to our own conclusions on these things, knowing you more fully, opening the heart to you, and experiencing the outpouring of the Spirit to reproduce in our hearts love as you have loved us. We pray in your holy name. Amen.